Today we begin a brand new series of messages entitled Warn. How do we walk through the trials and difficulties and struggles and pain that we face as Christians? Every single one of us face them. It's part of the journey. It's what our Savior did, and he was able to walk through those. We've learned from him. We don't have a Savior who's unable to sympathize with us, but we have one who endured the cross and tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he was without sin. We have a chance today to begin this journey, to take a look at how we can, through the power of Christ, navigate through challenging times. And often those times come when we're least expecting those. And they come when we find ourselves sometimes at the lowest point of our lives. And often they come when we were at the highest point of our lives. They come at all different kinds of moments in our lives. So today is our chance to take a look behind the scenes. And so as we kick off this series of messages, my hope today is this. We're going to peek behind the veil. We're going to look behind the pain of an individual with new lenses, and hopefully it'll help us to understand how we can minister to someone that's going through a very difficult time. How sometimes we are quick to judge a person's response to a difficult situation without fully having the full scope of information. Often we need to look behind to see what a person really is dealing with. As a 12-year-old boy, 41 years ago, I was on vacation with my father, and my siblings. I have three sisters and I have a younger brother. We were in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina on vacation. Some of you know my story, some don't. I have a stepfather that that became my stepfather at the age of five and raised me with my mom. And I have a father who came to know Christ when I was 18 years old. And so we were on vacation with my father and I was there with my siblings. My older sister, Kim, had given birth to the first grandchild of the family just nine months earlier. So she had a nine-month-old baby. Her name was Lindsay. We were on vacation in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. My sister, Kim, it was her first time away from the baby and to spend time on vacation. My mother and my stepfather, meanwhile, were back in Hagerstown, Maryland, and it was a chance for them as grandma and grandpa to watch the grandchild for a week. It was the best of both worlds. My sister getting a vacation with family and her father, my mother and stepfather back home caring for this precious first and only at the time grandchild. It was a picture that many would look forward to as a grandparent, time with your nine-month-old grandchild. And it was a chance for us as siblings to have a getaway to South Carolina, Myrtle Beach with our father. About four days into this vacation, which, which we enjoyed very not much, my sister woke in the middle of the night, my older sister Kim, and I recall hearing her yell, pray for mom. I can still recall her getting up and wondering what she was doing. She woke up in the middle of the night and screamed those words, pray for mom. Not fully understanding the ramification of a mother who was being led by the spirit, understanding that something wasn't right with mom. She woke up in the middle of the night and said, pray for mom. It was significant because even when she did that, she looked at her watch and knew exactly what time it was. So as my sister was crying out, Something was happening back home in Hagerstown, Maryland. I didn't know at the moment what that was. Early the next morning, my stepfather and my mother woke up at home. My mom walked into the bedroom in the crib where they found Lindsay dead. Had died of sudden infant death syndrome. Now, wrap your mind around this for a second. First grandchild, 
mom home with the baby, walking into this room and seeing this precious child blue because it had suffocated and died during the night. Meanwhile, in South Carolina, my sister was there and now was about to receive information that her only child, the first grandchild of the family, was dead. My stepfather had to make the call. And so he called down trying to find the the phone number of this motel back before internet was very difficult. Finally got the motel and my brother-in-law answered the phone. And I heard my brother-in-law talking to my stepfather, not fully understanding what was going on. And so my brother-in-law then went and told my sister what had taken place. What took took place next was just horrific. My sister screaming at the top of her lungs, not fully understanding what is taking place. As a 12-year-old boy, I wasn't sure what was taking place. In a matter of minutes, we, it felt like seconds, we all gathered our stuff. My uncle coordinated a flight back from, from Myrtle Beach, South Carolina to Hagerstown, Maryland, so that my sister could fly back and see her dead child. Meeting my mom on the other end, we scurried and got things together and got in our cars and headed north. Now picture if you can, my mother knowing that she was the caregiver of this grandchild, having to see my sister, who now walks into this place where the child is dead, and mom trying to console her. A lot has happened since that moment in our lives, and it happened on Labor Day weekend. And every Labor Day weekend, if you go social media and you'll see my sister, she'll post a reminder that Lindsay would have been this old today. She would have been this old today. She would have been this old today. Now picture, if you can, 41 years of my mom from time to time dealing with this, this almost guilt like she should have done something. Like there was something she could have done differently to make sure that baby, she should have stayed up all night and slept by the crib when the first cry came for her. And my sister on the other end dealing with the guilt of she shouldn't have left the baby. I have watched my mother and I have watched my sister and my father-in-law and my stepfather navigate through this process. It was interesting during the, the, the autopsy that they found that the time of death was the exact time that my sister woke up in the middle of the morning and said, pray for mom. I remember going to this funeral as a 12-year-old boy, not fully understanding exactly what was going on. I watched my, my sister near the front of this funeral service weeping. I watched my mom weeping beside her. And I remember thinking, God, Why? not fully understanding the full ramification of what was taking place and asking God, God, why would you allow something like this? And I've watched my sister and I've watched my mom through the years. There have been moments where it resurfaces and this moment where they ask God the same thing. Lord, why? But not once through this whole journey have I been watching them and watching them, have I noticed that ever once that they walk away from their faith, but there have been times when their faith has been challenged and they have spoken in ways that if it was recorded so that the world could hear it, you might say, wow, I can't believe a Christian would say that. Today, we're going to go behind the scenes of a woman who faced something very similar to that, who for the first time experienced death And for the first time, not only experienced the death, but is inscripturated forever and ever and ever and ever with the words that she said at a moment at her very, very weakest moment. Grab your Bibles and turn to the book of Job. 
Grab your Bibles and turn to the book of Job. And we're going to read an opening, Job chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. If you need a Bible, hold your hand up and our ushers will place one in your hand. Turn to Job chapter 1 and we're going to read verses 1 through 3. Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job. Job chapter 1 and we're going to read verses 1 to 3. Stand with me and we'll read it out loud together. Job chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Let's read this together. Ready, read. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep. 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. You may have a seat. When it comes to suffering, when it comes to pain, when it comes to struggle, there's always, always more going on than what you see. And so my hope today is this, as you walk through suffering, as someone else walks through suffering, that you will not be quick to judge someone by their response, but be willing to say there's so much more going on behind the scenes that maybe I'll never know or never experience. So, so maybe I should respond to them in a way that lifts them up and not tears them down. There's always more going on behind the scene. We're familiar, some of us, with Job. We're familiar with the account of Job. And we see from this account that he's referred to as blameless and upright. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. Now imagine if you can. That's how God saw him. That's how people saw him. The credit was going to God. Even God himself saw him as blameless and upright. Then why would a man and a wife who, as best as we know, were all in for Jesus, were living out their faith in such a great way, why would they experience such incredible tragedy that we're about to read about? You would think that somehow, because he was upright and blameless, and he was the greatest man among all the men in the East, that everything that he did from there on out would receive, as we understand or think we understand, the favor and blessing of God. Let's start here for a second. Not everything you know is, is, is available to you that happens behind the scenes. Sometimes what is not written in the Bible can be as important as what is written in the Bible about someone. If you look at this account again, there is no mention in verses 1 to 3 of Job's wife. There's not one recorded verse. There's not one proper noun. There's not one reference with a definitive article to the wife of Job. He, she's not even mentioned in this account. Yet we know that he had a wife. We know he had a wife because we're about to find out that what, when she did speak, it's recorded forever. And we know that if he was a blameless man and an upright man, and he was a man, the greatest man among the East, that behind him, because God saw him that way, that there was a great woman of God. 
We know behind every great man is a great woman supporting, caring, lifting, cheering on, praying for. That we know that in order for a man to be great in Christ, there's often this stalwart woman behind him, often behind the scenes, not getting the credit she here gets here, but she'll get one day before God at the Bema seat, standing behind. We know that somehow that there's this woman behind the scenes, but her name is never mentioned in the introduction of Job, sons, daughters, possessions, but no wife is mentioned in the intro here. So if we're able to, and I think we can, what we do know is this, there is nothing that incriminates this Job's wife. And if there was, we'd probably hear about it. But what we do know is that he had a wife. And it appeared that everything was going well with his wife and with him. He was wealthy, he was respected, he had tons of servants, he was the greatest man in the East. They had a nice place to live, to call home. They had servants. They had everything that they needed. Can we at least pause and give a cheer for her and Job and say, you guys are doing well in your relationship with God so much that it's referred to that you were blameless and upright and you were the greatest man. And we knew that there was a woman there too. Many people go their entire lives living faithful and receive no fanfare or applause. Job's wife appears to be that woman on the pages absent in verses 1 through 3. Yet everything would change for her, and many of us have even inscripturated her in a way that probably I would say today, if we knew exactly what was happening behind the scenes of this pain, that we would pull away from our response and our characterization of her. I would say this, we need to reserve judgment till you know the full story about someone and the pain they are walking through. Look with me, if you will, look at verses 6 to 20. Let's just see the story that happens. It says this in verse 6, one day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came with them. Now that's significant. Now picture, because we know that Satan is not omnipresent, he's not omniscient, which means he is not all-knowing, nor is Satan able to be everywhere at once. So if Satan shows up somewhere, there must be significance to that, that he is after someone who is, who is not only doing something for God, but making significant progress for God. Because Satan often sends his demons, but he himself doesn't appear in person. But we see he appears in person. It says, Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth. Then the Lord said to who? Who's he saying this to? Satan. Have you considered my servant who? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless. An upright, a man who does what with God? Fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing, Satan replied? Have you not put a hedge of protection around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has and he will surely what you to your face. So Satan is saying, listen, God, I would trust you too if I had all this. 
I would lift you up and I would live upright if, if I had what he had. But if you do this to him, I am convinced that he will curse you to your face. Then it says this in verse 12. The Lord said to Satan, very well then. Everything he has is in your what? Power. But on the man himself, do not lay a what? Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. It's very important here. This is very important. Satan can only do to us with him and his demons what God says is permissible. Now, that's very important. Because that means this, whatever trouble comes your way, whatever pain comes your way, whatever hardship comes your way, has to be approved by God himself as Satan wants to do something to your life. He's the one that gives approval to it. So he gives approval to this. Look what it says in verse 13. One day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby. And the Sabians attacked and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. So out of nowhere, he gets this messenger running to him, out of breath, saying, Hey, you've lost all these animals, and I'm the only one that's left. So Job is taking this in. Imagine taking that in. And before he could take a second breath, it says this, Wow! He was getting this information while he was speaking. Another messenger came and said, the fire of God fell from the heavens and burned up the sheep and the servants. And I am the only one who has escaped to tell you while he was getting that news. It says this. Look again. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, the Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword. And I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. Can you see what's happening? Now, as if the first report wasn't bad, he gets a second report. As if the second isn't bad enough, he gets a third report. Now, look at verse 18. As if that isn't enough, it says this in verse 18. While he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, Your sons and your daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house. When suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house, it collapsed on them and they are what? dead. And I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Imagine that. He's lost everything. Everything near and dear to him, he's lost. Now listen, so did his wife. And so we see the response of Job. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Wow, he's got a great response. Meanwhile, his wife is receiving this news that everything that they own, everything they possess is going. And not only that, but 10 kids are dead. Look what happens next. Look what the, as we read on here. Look at chapter 2. This happens. The children are dead. The house is blown down. The, the, the animals are dead. They're down to nothing. They're, they're, they're basically homeless. And it says this in chapter 2. On what kind of day? What's it say? Another day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came with them to present himself before him. And the Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? 
Satan answered the Lord, from roaming around the earth, going back and forth from it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? I want to interject. I'd say, yeah, he has. He sure has. There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. And he still maintains his integrity, though you incited me against him to ruin him without reason. In other words, he's still being faithful. And I believe that his wife was still being faithful too. Look what it says next. In verse 4, skin for skin, Satan replied. A man will give all he has for his own life. But now stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bone, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to who? Who did he say it to? Satan. Very well then. He is in your hands, but you must spare his what? Life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head. Then Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. Verse 9, this is where finally the only words that are recorded from his wife are spoken. Ten words. Ten words that are inscripturated forever. Ten words that we, we, we take and we, we cast judgment on a wife who's just experienced all this horrific pain, all this suffering, loss of child, loss of children, loss of home. We, we, we only hear from her now, and this is what's recorded in Scripture. Look at verse 9. His wife said to him, ten words, Are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and what? Die. He replied, Job, that is, you are talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? In all this, Job did not sin in what he had said. She speaks 10 words. That's it. 42 chapters. Just 10 words are recorded. Just 10 words in utter pain. Just 10 words after suffering all she had spoken. Just 10 words like this. Part of me would say, why didn't you record some more about her? Why do you just record the stuff where she spoke in her humanness and her... Why is that is all that's recorded about when there's 42 other chapters with hundreds of other verses of things that Job and others said? These 10 words were spoken on the heels of gut-wrenching heartache, a mama losing her kids. And gut-wrenching pain where she was found homeless, childless, and now a husband she has to care for. God never wastes his pain, by the way. And in this case, he was proving a point to the enemy, to his arch rival, Satan, that there are people who can stand in the midst of the pain and still trust me. And in many cases, when I see this account, I often think about this, that God already knew how Job would respond, but Satan didn't know how he would respond. And so God is proving a point that there are those who can trust in him in the midst of the pain, and it's his chance to say, there are people out there who know how to stick it to Satan in the midst of pain. These words are recorded about Job's wife. We've judged her, we've characterized her, and said, good response from Job, bad response from his wife, He trusted, she didn't trust God. I beg to differ that response and conclusion today. I beg to restore this woman's name. 
I choose today to take a hard look at this passage again and suggest that maybe we have unjustly judged this woman. I ask that we let mercy trump judgment. And for that matter, I ask that we begin to let mercy trump judgment. Until you peered behind the scenes and understand the pain, you'll never know fully a person's faith. Now, if I were to, if I were to pull behind the scenes of my precious sister Kim and my mama, and I were to record the moments where they ask God, God, why? Why would you allow, God, why did you leave me here and Kim was down there? God, if you're just God, why? Why, as I heard my sister through the years, why are there moments when, when she still asks God, God, why? And if that's all re- is recorded about my sister and my mama, then you could form a conclusion. But here's what I know about my sister. And here's what I know about my mama. That they are still standing and trusting in Christ. And I believe we're going to see the same about Job's wife here today. Ten funerals of her children. Ten holes in the ground that bore her last name. That she labored over, changed diapers, fed them, stroked their hair, put braids in their hair, got them ready for school in the morning. That she dreamed over and loved unconditionally. Now when she goes to the gravesite, she's fresh off the holes in the ground. And all she sees is a tombstone, a tombstone, a tombstone, a tombstone, a tombstone. Let me ask you a question. If someone jammed a microphone in your face and you were the mama that just experienced that, what might your response be? Yet that's all that's recorded in this account. When is the last time you had to bury one of your kids? Stop and imagine the grief she was carrying during this time. Her world was turned upside down. I wish, this is what I wish. I wish before we read chapter 2 and verse 9, when she said, are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and I. I wish there were three more chapters that said this, that, that hundreds of, of other ladies stepped into her life, stood beside her and said, You're going, we're going to make it and we're going to stand with you. I wish it said that there were a thousand emails that she received. I wish it says that someone gave them a vacation home to spend a month in to recover. I wish that we could see from the pages of scripture where the body of God stepped in and ministered to this person, but we don't see it anywhere. Other than Job's friends coming and sitting with him. Now, add to all this, if you can, this, this peek behind the scenes. She's homeless, as most likely homeless. She's having, have had the worst of worst case scenario. Her kids are dead. And, and even worse than that, everything that she labored over, now her husband is filled with all these sores and, and the very person that she, that she wanted her own comfort from couldn't even comfort her. When she probably needed what she probably needed the most, the comfort of a brother or sister, the words, mommy, it's going to be okay from a child, the soft touch of her husband, yet it was nowhere to be found. And all of a sudden, we jammed this microphone in her face, and now we have the very first social media inscription that has been around forever called the Word of God, and it says, curse God and die. And so we form opinions about this woman 
that I think are unjust. Imagine the grief she was carrying, the physical exhaustion, the hunger and the loneliness. And imagine a microphone being jammed in your face. At your weakest moment, just just imagine, at your weakest moment, whatever you experience with your kids or your husband, imagine for a second. No one truly knows the depth of suffering except unless you've walked through it yourself. Suffering isn't, is at the heart of the church in a Christianity. It just is. It helps us understand our Savior better because he suffered in every way too. So he, she asked, are you still maintaining your integrity? Before you're quick to judge this woman, walk a mile in her shoes. Ask yourself, experience the depth of her grief and her pain. And ask yourself, would you respond any differently? Ask yourself this question. If you would want someone to walk into the bedroom of your home when you had just lost everything and you're having a conversation with your husband and you knew that everything you said would be broadcasted to the world, ask yourself if you wanted that to get out. Or ask yourself if the words you spoke when you were up all night with a crying baby and you hadn't slept for three nights, if those words you would want inscripturated forever. Paint a picture of your worst case scenario, the worst moment that you ever had, and imagine someone recording your words. Would it mean that you didn't have faith? Would it mean that you were faithless? Would it mean that somehow you didn't believe and trust in God? Or would it just be a moment of raw humanness and weakness? I want to say that we could say that there are many in this room who would say to Job's wife, I totally get you. I understand you. And if we're brutally honest, every single one of us totally understand her. I understand her when I look at that. I get that. Like, that's real. That's not facade. That's a woman, a mother who had lost everything. But somehow we have grown to not give mercy to people who respond in very human ways when suffering comes. And the best version of them is nowhere to be found. We are quick to judge and say, I can't believe, aren't they Christians? Listen, she is very human here. Let's give some grace to the suffering. You see, the will of God is never exactly what you expect it to be. It may seem to be too much for you, but in the end, it'll be better and bigger if you're still willing to walk it the whole way through. Let's extend some grace to people who are suffering, who've had a bad day. This was not Job's wife's finest moment. And I suspect if she had to do it all over again, she would have responded differently if she knew that it would be recorded forever. She would have... If could, she would go to the social media page and, and hit the little arrow at the top and hit edit. And you would read it. And you would say, it's an edited version. But there was no editing here. 
She needs a voice of hope. She had just lost everything near and dear to her. Look at Job chapter 6 and verse 14. I mean, isn't that what Job himself said? Look at Job chapter 6 and verse 14. Look what he says. He says, anyone who withholds kindness from a friend forsakes the fear of the Almighty. I mean, he's even responding, where's the kindness? Anyone that does that isn't truly walking in the Spirit. But then I'm reminded what Paul had to say in 2 Corinthians when it comes to suffering. Just turn there. Keep your finger here in Job. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. He gives us a a, a behind-the-scenes view of a very real encounter that he experienced. Look what he said in 2 Corinthians 1, verses 8 through 11. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 1, 8 through 11. He says, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experience in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not only rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. In other words, God does give us more than we can handle. Then it says this in verse 10. He delivered us from such a deadly pearl and he will deliver us again. On him we have set our hope that we will continue, that he will continue to deliver us. And then he says this in verse 11. As you have helped us by your what? prayers, then many will give thanks on our behalf for the gracious favor granted us in answer to the what of many. I suggest, Grace Community, listen to me, please. When you know someone is suffering, when you know they're walking through the perils of death, when there's feels like a death sentence is on them, when you know that it is challenging for them, don't rush in with this quick and clever phrase. That says, God is in control. You'll be okay. Yes, he is in control. And yes, ultimately they will be okay. But if you see even from 2 Corinthians 1, and you look at this account, what was the response? He, Paul said, we were able to make it because of your what? Prayers. Before you rush in, pray, Lord, what is it that you would have me do? And I suspect from experience, this is what I found to be true. Less is best. Just listen and pray. Connect their pain to our God and let them know that he is the answer and the remedy to the problem that they're facing. That ultimately Jesus is the solution and not you. You know, the Bible tells us that we're supposed to bear one another's burdens. By the way, not their baggage, but their burdens. And the best way you can bear one another's burdens is just be a listening voice. In fact, look what Job's friends did for him. Look down here in in, in verse 12 and 13. We see Job's friends doing this. Look at verse 12 of chapter 2. When they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud. And they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. Then they sat on the what? Come on, help me out. Verse 13. Then they sat on the ground with him for how long? And seven nights. No one said a what to him. Because they saw how great his suffering was. You want to minister to someone going through a very difficult time? Listen, just sit with them and 
pray to God and point them to Jesus. You are not the solution to the problem. Jesus is. So often we want to come in with this clever thing. Oh, I've been through that. I know what everything you're going through. I've experienced that. Listen to me. You never know exactly what person has walked to you. Peek behind the veil. And then you will find out what they are experiencing. Maybe I understand this woman better. Because of watching people suffer and watching people walk into their life trying to console them. Maybe I feel compassion for Job's wife because I'm humbled by the way Jesus showed compassion when others were quick to judge. Maybe I understand Job's wife better because I've watched my sister and my mama walk through this very challenging thing for 41 years. Maybe, just maybe, I feel compassion because I have witnessed person after person unfairly characterized by someone who has never spoken a word to them, but forms an opinion from a distance. Job's wife was crushed. Instead of judging her, let's love her. Maybe I've been challenged by this passage in a fresh way when I revisit the words of Job. Let's go back and look at his response. Let's see what he really said. Look at chapter 2 and verse 10. After she says this in verse 9, are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die. Look at the husband's response before making judgment. He replied, you are talking like a what kind of woman? Shall we accept good from God and not trouble Maybe, listen to me, maybe he was trying to comfort his wife in the moment of great distress. Listen, he did not say you are foolish. He said you are talking like a foolish. Maybe, just maybe, he was saying, hey honey, this isn't you talking here. I know what you believe. I know your heart. Maybe, just maybe, he was looking at his wife and saying, hey, this is a bad moment, baby. I love you. Listen, I understand your, your humanness. Listen, you're not a foolish woman, but you're talking, honey, I get it. Maybe, just maybe, that was his response. She felt helpless in a moment of weakness. And don't we? Because it's in our weakness that Christ is strong. And by the way, Job's wife stood with him until the end. Stop and consider that truth first. Nowhere do we see where she bailed out on him. Nowhere is it recorded that she walked away. Nowhere is it recorded that she wasn't there. In fact, we know that she was still there. In fact, look at Job chapter 19 and verse 17. There's reference to her. Job chapter 19 and verse 17. This is Job's reply after one of his friends. And he says this in verse 17. My breath is offensive to my wife. I am loathsome to my own family. He is still there. She is still there. So she hasn't left. She's there. So all we know is that she spoke these words. Now we know that she's still there because he says his breath is offensive to his wife. She is still there. And then in Job chapter 42, go to the end of the book. What happens at the end of the story? Look at Job chapter 42, last chapter of the story. Job chapter 42. 
in verse 10. It says this. After Job had prayed for his friends, the Lord restored his fortunes and gave him twice as much as he had before. All his brothers and sisters and everyone who had known him before came and ate with him in his house. They comforted and consoled him over all the troubles the Lord had brought on him. And each one gave him a piece of silver and a gold ring. And then it says this in verse 12. The Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life. How much? More than the former part. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and a dozen donkeys. And he also had seven sons and three daughters. The first daughter he named Jemiah, the second daughter Keziah, and the third Karen Hapuk. Then it says this in verse 15. Nowhere in all the land were there found women as beautiful as Job's daughters, and their fathers granted them And their father granted them inheritance along with their brothers. After this, Job lived 140 years. He saw his children and their children to the fourth generation. And so Job died, an old man, full of years. Guess what? Let me just speak some truth. You can't have children without a wife. And you might say, well, it's probably another wife. Well, if we're looking at how this whole book unpacks, if we're looking how the writer wrote and the spirit inspired, I'll show you consistency. Guess what? If you look at the intro, guess what? Job's wife was never mentioned in the intro when the sons and daughters were there. So consistency, even in scripture, it ends up there's sons and daughters there. Why? Because I believe that his wife was still with him to the end. And here's what I also know to be true. If God blessed him more than what he had before, God would never take away a wife who he was supposed to stay with until death. He would bless that marriage. And I believe that she birthed 10 more kids. And at the end, she was faithful and she was standing with her husband. And I think instead of demeaning her and criticizing her, say, way to go, Job's wife, whatever your name is. You might say, well, Pastor Jim, how else do you know that? Do you realize that God judges three friends with their responses, but he never judges Job's wife. Why? Because it was one response that was inscripturated forever. It was one moment of weakness of a human being who said these questions and asked God, God, why did you do that? Lord, why did that happen? Have you ever spoken those words? Sure we have. And if that's all that's recorded about you, Job's wife didn't always have the right words and sometimes the circumstances overwhelmed her, but doggone it, she was there at the end trusting God and loving her husband. Somehow, some way, she recovered from this gut-wrenching loss and grief to stand by her man and to trust in her God. I feel like God wants this message to come out today because we're so often quick to judge others And too quick to give advice about how we would do it when we don't have the full picture. And in doing so, some of us have slandered, gossiped, butchered the character of someone who is a brother or sister in Christ. What might happen if we give people the benefit of the doubt instead of believing the worst about them? You see, I believe we take the heart of our Savior and we drop the rocks. (laughs) 
And we extend grace instead of judgment. No one took time to ask her, we can see in Scripture, how she was doing. Not one verse is recorded where people stood by her side and held up her arms. And you got to know, this was a woman. This was a mom who more than ever needed someone, an Aaron in her to come alongside of her. In this case, 10 freshly dug graves, a house wiped off its foundation, a husband stricken with a disease so bad that when his friends saw him, they bowed to the ground in pity. Why didn't friends run to this woman and say, I totally get you, lady, and pour love and compassion all over her instead of years of judgment? Maybe we're more self-centered than we realize. You see, we're human. And so as I stand here today and I read this account, I see all these situations that I've experienced and watched people walk through through the years. And I know in a group of this size, that's here, that's in the link, that's across the world, you feel like Job's wife. You feel misunderstood. You're longing to have someone come alongside you, not speaking anything, just, just a gentle touch and praying for you. You long to get off of that island all by yourself. You long to just be really real and say, this is how I'm really feeling, but I'm afraid to say it because of judgment. And you're here today. And if you don't turn that burden over to Christ, you will leave here burdened and heavy and defeated. So you know what we're going to let you do today? We're going to give you an opportunity to respond to that pain that you're feeling. Now listen, this takes courage. It takes great courage. Because number one, you're acknowledging that there's something in your life that's heavy. And all you want to know is that there's someone that would lay a hand on you and pray and point them to Jesus and help you bear your burden. So I'm going to ask you to stand with me in both venues right now. With your heads bowed, we're about to sing a song. And your eyes closed, we're about to sing a song. In fact, it'll be sung to you. The words of the song tell us that Jesus is the answer to our problems. And so as you hear this song being sung... I encourage you, in fact, I invite you to just let it wash over you. Let the truths of this song bring life and healing because it'll point you to Jesus and it'll tell you that Jesus is the answer. Jesus will bear that burden. Jesus will take it from you. And so our response or your response to that is this. I want you to come. I want you to just kneel across the front here in the link in the main. I, I, I want you to come out and say, God, I need you to take this from me. Now listen to me, it's going to... You have to come. You just you have to allow Christ to carry that burden. Your back isn't strong enough to carry that burden. And here's the second part of this. If you're out there today and you see someone that's coming forward, I want you to ask the Holy Spirit. Say, Holy Spirit, should I go? And just kneel beside this person, not speak a word, but lay a hand on them and pray for them and point them to Jesus and let him be the solution to their problems. So it's twofold. Come. 
And for those of you who are out there, they're being led by the Spirit, come alongside as you hear this song being sung. In Jesus' name, amen. So come.